live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting, proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org liberating. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, like this podcast, which we hope you will subscribe to. We also have a website at leadingsaints.org with thousands of incredible articles all about leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. We host virtual summits, live events, and also have a weekly newsletter to keep you up to date on all things happening with Leading Saints. Visit leadingsaints.org for more information. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability. Today, I'm in Pleasant Grove, Utah with Professor Brent Topp. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. It's an honor to have you. Yeah, well, I'm excited to have this conversation. I've heard you on several different podcasts, and I, think, and I thought, you know, I think it's my turn to, to, <laughs> to have him on my podcast. So. Well, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm very pleased to be here. Now, if someone's listening who may not, who maybe didn't attend BYU and isn't familiar with you and your background, uh, how would you put yourself into context? Well, I guess you would say that I've been a... a lifetime religious educator. Uh-huh. So I started out teaching a release time seminary as a, as a very young man and was in the church educational system and seminaries and institutes for about uh, 10 years when I was hired to be a full-time faculty member at BYU in religious education. And uh, I'm just ending my career of 45 years as a religious educator, 34 of which have been at BYU and um, been... Uh, served in all different kinds of positions in, in the college. Uh, I served as associate dean. I served as a department chair and, and dean for several years. But the real reason why I became a religious educator is I love teaching the gospel and love the classroom and love associating with the, the young people and the saints. And and then along the way, life happens. Yeah. And uh, and I guess uh, maybe for this podcast, it's my not necessarily my religious education experience, but maybe some church experience that, yeah. uh, that I had. Uh, I was called as a very, very young bishop uh, and uh, learned a lot from that. Uh, I served in, in Bishop Bricks. I served on several high councils and, uh, and a young single adult stake presidency. Then uh, I was called to be a mission president in the Illinois Peoria Mission from 2004 to 2007, 
came home and I was uh, called to be a sacrament meeting door greeter. Oh, nice. And so <laughs> I went from mission president on one Sunday to door greeter on another Sunday and did that for a while, uh, a year or so. And then I was called to be the stake president of the Pleasant Grove, Utah East Stake and, and uh, was just released uh, from that uh, just uh, a few years ago and, and minding my business uh, teaching gospel doctrine Sunday school class. Then the pandemic happens and that all kind of threw everything up in the air. And then about a year ago, I was called to be a sealer in the Mount Timpanogos Temple. So that is uh, my life all condensed <laughs> down into just a few minutes. And so there's there's not much left to say about right, me then. Right, right, so. yeah. So uh, in, in the beginning of your career, like starting as a seminary teacher, did you think that that's sort of where you would oh, have yeah, your career? Oh, yeah, there was no doubt in my mind yeah. that's what I wanted to do the rest of my yeah. life. In fact, uh, uh, people have laughed. My children even laugh at me when I say that I knew that I wanted to be a seminary teacher when I was a junior in high school. And I was probably the biggest smart aleck in seminary and probably <laughs> caused uh, my seminary teachers the great amount of grief, but they had a great impact on me. And I thought, this is what I want to do, even as a, as a high school student. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I yeah. wanted to be a teacher. That's, yeah. that's all I really wanted to do was to be a teacher. Yeah. And was graduate school natural for you to move on to well, a PhD? Uh, and things? Yeah. I looked at, I looked at my uh, graduate school uh, for two reasons, one altruistic and one purely temporal, secular, profane. And that was the money that you get <laughs> an increase in, in salary if you did uh, degrees. And so I did my, I did my master's degree really both my master's and PhD was never with the intent of being at BYU or being in higher education. It was really, how can I improve my teaching, my depth, my breadth, whatever, to help those that were in my classes? And so I didn't think of graduate school in the terms of really uh, becoming a Hugh Nibley or anything like that. Uh, it yeah. was how can I become a better teacher, better educator, specifically a better religion teacher? Yeah, yeah. And so, was it uh, when? When did it come into reality that you wanted to be a BYU, work at BYU, and teach at BYU? Well, then, and that's a very good question. I, while I was finishing and working on my my PhD, I was on leave from the seminaries and institutes and and assigned to teach religion classes at BYU. And it was such a wonderful experience, and I just idolized the religion professors. I just thought they walked on water and knew everything, <laughs> and I just loved them. And I just thought, boy, this would be a wonderful job. And when when we pulled out of town after I'd finished my PhD and I was going back to the Washington, D.C. area for the church educational system, my wife and I cried thinking we would never have the opportunity to teach at BYU. And then just a year or two later, I get a phone call and they say, how would you like to be considered for a full-time position in our faculty sometime in the future? Well, in my young career, sometime in the future was a long time. I said, sure. A week later, they, the department chair called me and said, uh, you have an appointment with the academic vice president of the university and some other vice presidents next week. <laughs> and uh, and so it all came kind of fast. Wow. I never even really applied for the position. They invited me to come and and so I was a fairly young young professor at BYU as a peer colleague of those 
professors that I'd idolized both as an undergraduate and as a graduate student. Wow. Wow. So pivoting to your some of your leadership uh, service, you mentioned being called as a young bishop. What what were the circumstances around being called there? Well, I was just, uh, I was, you know, I was teaching at BYU and we were living here in this very house and, and stake president came and, and uh, sat right in that chair where you're sitting. And, and uh, he actually talked to uh, Sister Top first, which I thought was a really wonderful move. Now, think about this. This was 30 plus years ago that I thought it was really wonderful that he was reaching out to my wife because she was going to be involved in that. And, and uh, he reached out to her and said, I'm here to call your husband as bishop. How would you feel about that? And is, are there any concerns or issues that you have? So before he ever checked with me on worthiness or whether I was willing to serve, he was really getting the feelings of my wife. And I thought that was interesting. And, and, uh, and my wife had a really interesting response and said, well, how long will he serve? And the stake president said, well, the bishop he's replacing has served nine years. Oh, wow. And then her mouth just kind of <laughs> dropped open at that. I mean, it, it didn't work out that I served that long. But, yeah. uh, but our youngest child was about two or three at the time. And, and, and so we just had, had young children. And, just it was a great, wonderful experience. Yeah. Hard, but it was it was good. Yeah. And as we go through maybe some of your experience in, in leadership, uh, you know, you mentioned before we hit record that uh we, we oftentimes walk in with certain expectations to these roles and and get a quick lesson. Yeah, right? oh absolutely. And and it's true with every calling, uh, but let me I'll use it one example to illustrate that yeah. principle. Uh and I think that's one of the lessons that we need to learn in leadership and service in the Lord's kingdom is to remember whose kingdom it is. And I think uh, when I was mission president, I'd had, I had friends and colleagues that had been mission presidents and they had shared war stories <laughs> with me. And so it created an unrealistic expectation about, oh my gosh, this is going to be so hard. And I, I was almost going in kind of white knuckling it even before I'd started it because <laughs> you'd hear all these things about it. And and then other things is that on that same, maybe more so with mission president than anything else, was that it was so overwhelming to me. But then I immediately, because when you're called for, uh, from the first presidency and then you have months before you're actually going to go and they're sending you all this stuff and you're listening to all the CDs about the mission president seminar and 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 so i'm thinking of all the things that i'm going to do when i get there and it didn't take long for me to realize that it wasn't necessarily about my plans uh-huh. it really i learned very quickly within the first few months as mission president that my job was to do what the lord wanted me to do not what i had planned out in my office at BYU or my home in Pleasant Grove, uh -huh. and that I had all these great plans of things that I was going to do. And then it just became very apparent, one out of expediency because you're just so stinking busy, but also because you start to realize that what you thought isn't really what was needed. And, and I learned also when I was feeling like, man, I'm doing a terrible job. I'm not, you know, I'm not meeting all the expectations and, 
that I'd had. And it was when the Spirit would kind of say to me, well, remember, these are my missionaries. This is my mission. This is my church. I'm not going to let you fail. Hmm. And I think that was a a great uh, lesson in leadership that I learned that if I will do what the Lord wants me to do, then then I'm going to be successful no matter what. Yeah. But if I've got my list of to-do list of all the things that I planned out that I'm going to do, I'm setting myself up for failure because it'll never work out the way that you have it planned that way. Yeah. And any specific routine or approach to doing that? Because I know in walking into many callings, you sort of, uh, you have ideas and things you want to try. And right. so how, how do you stay in that mindset of turning oh, no, to I the Lord? That, I think that's uh, that's absolutely true. I was called to be a mission president uh, by President Thomas S. Monson. And I remember we were sitting in President Monson's office in the church administration building. And, and after he'd extended the call to us, he said, now don't uh, don't make any real immediate changes when you get out there. And so I had planned, okay, I'm going to you know, spend several months just thinking. And I'd had a colleague say, it's going to take you, you know, eight months to a year before you really feel like you've got your feet under your underground. So I was really thinking I was going to just go in and, and observe. But I remember going to the first round of zone conferences and things were going on in the zone conference and things, reactions of missionaries and, and so forth that I knew needed immediate attention. Hmm. And so it wasn't that I was disobeying President Monson. It was the spirit prompting me saying, these are some things that need to be done. When I was called a stake president, I had had feelings for months beforehand, and you would immediately push those out of your mind and out of your life, thinking how horrible to even think such things. But I I had even had names of counselors coming into my head, and I just hated that. I was so uncomfortable having those feelings. But then when I was called down to the stake center, uh, Elder Spencer Condi of the 70 was our visiting authority. And and when I was called down to to meet with Elder Condi, I knew exactly what it was going to be. And as we were walking up the stairs to the stake president's complex, the office, I just I was just kind of shaking, and my wife said, you know, you've been through this before with mission president. You know whom the Lord calls, he qualifies. And so I got in there, and Elder Condi had extended the call to me and all that, and then he said, you know, we need the the names of your counselors so we can interview them and have everything called tonight with the Saturday night session and all of that. Can you have the names of your counselors to me within 15 minutes? That was shocking to me. And he said, you take Sister Top and you can go in this adjacent office here and talk together as husband and wife and pray together and uh, come back with names of counselors in 15 minutes. And I knew at that moment that was one of the reasons why the Lord had been preparing me. Mm-hmm. And then when the keys are conferred, there were those things that had been on my heart and on my mind that I was trying to push out of my heart and my mind because it just felt so uncomfortable at the time. Then when the call and the mantle comes, then I say, oh, that's what the Lord has been doing. Hmm. And so when you talked about, well, you do have those ideas and stuff. Yeah, it's not like you're planning it all out. But I think the Lord does work on us. 
And as the prophet Joseph Smith taught, that inspiration comes as sudden strokes of ideas or sudden thoughts that come into our mind. And I think in every calling, whether we are totally shocked by the calling to lead and or teach, or whether we have been prepared mentally and spiritually for it, I think the Lord is giving us life lessons and insights and thoughts so that we do not come into a calling in his kingdom totally unprepared. Right. We may feel totally unprepared, (laughs) and we may feel totally inadequate, but as I said a few minutes ago, in his kingdom, he's preparing us and he's qualifying us. Yeah. Anything, uh, thinking back uh, to your time as as a young bishop, you know, with hindsight and, 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 you know, many years of separation there, what expectations do you remember walking into that and, and what did you uh, learn in that context? That one was more feeling of, of total shock and not being prepared. But the one thing that, that I learned, two things that I learned almost immediately is it doesn't matter whether you're in your early 30s or your late 60s. When keys are conferred upon you, things change. And I learned very, very early as, as that very young bishop that the keys of the priesthood are very, very real and that the Lord will allow you to use those keys to open the doors. And so I was probably thinking more about organizational things and, you know, problems with marriages and families and things like that. I think what the Lord was really trying to prepare me for was your greatest job is to love. Mm-hmm. Your greatest job is to be guided by the Spirit. Your greatest job is just to help connect people to heaven. And so my expectations may have been being overwhelmed by all that I would have to do, and the Lord was preparing me for all that I needed to feel and be and express to people as I went mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. You know, just looking at your, you mentioned people often ask you about, you know, what's easier, what's the difference between stake president and mission president? And I mean, is it, is it, uh, can, can these callings really be compared? I mean, from your experience? No, that's or? a, well, that's a very good question. Elder L. Tom Perry in General Conference uh, many, many years ago, and I don't even know if he was quoting someone else, but he made a very interesting observation. He said, Every calling above, even though we don't think of above or below or whatever, but he said, every calling above bishop is just talk. Right. (laughs) And I I, I really have liked that because the bishop calling is really, you're in the trenches. Yeah. You're really in the trenches. You're really close to people. Stake president is extraordinarily busy and stressful. And in my case, I had 10 units in my stake. So I had the problems of 10 bishops and 10 wards. And I always joke that as stake president, I was the the therapist to 10 bishops hmm. because they didn't have anybody else to talk to. Yeah. And, uh, and so stake president was extremely challenging, was pressure packed and stressful. But I also had a lot of people on a stake level to work with. Mm-hmm. And and if you allow them to do their jobs and to run their organizations, boy, it makes your life easier for you. 
Mission president, not so much. Mission president, you have 150 and now sometimes considerably more, sometimes considerably less during pandemic years, but you have average 150, 200 missionaries that you are responsible for their lives. Yeah. You're responsible for them 24-7. I mean, I was responsible for all of the saints in the Pleasant Grove East Stake, but oftentimes when I came home on Sunday night, I didn't worry about them anymore <laughs> until Monday morning yeah. or later Sunday night. But as mission president, it was 24-7, 365 or 66 for three years. Uh -huh. It is nonstop action. It is relentless. And though I had counselors, a mission president uses counselors differently than a stake president or a bishop would. Hmm. And, uh, and so my counselors helped train priesthood leaders and the saints in other parts of the mission. But as far as the everyday problems and challenges of being, being with 150 young adults and, and a whole bunch of senior missionaries that are having gallstones and, and knee problems and everything 180 degrees different than young elders and sisters, you, are, you feel a lot more alone. Yeah. And, uh, and you don't have time to really stop and think, uh, what do I do next? Yeah. It just yeah. comes at you. And, and in that dynamic, I remember that in a stake presidency where there's just so many people and it's, right. and we're being a bishop, it's almost like more manageable because, uh, you know, you're having one-to-one -one interactions with people, right. you feel connected and whatnot. Any advice on, you know, even running a mission where there's just so much going on, how do you narrow it down to just applicable steps day to day? Well, I, and I think you identified, identified the key right out of the chute, and that is one-on-one. -on -one. Hmm. I think for me, when I would be most discouraged or feel the least effective is when I was trying to worry about every moving part. Hmm. But if I would think about one person at a time, oftentimes sitting across from me, or when I'm having a personal priesthood interview with a bishop or an elders quorum president or a high priest group leader at that time, it was really the church and kingdom of God in reality is no bigger than an individual and a family. And I really think that, that for me, I became less effective the more complex I made leadership. The more I worried about administration, the more I micromanaged things, the less effective I was in being the Lord's representative one-on-one. Mm. -on -one. Mm. That's powerful. In the mission context, obviously, there's the tradition of every six weeks or so you have inter inter right. mission present interviews with all yeah. your missionaries, right? Is that typically in order to have that one-on-one -on -one connection, is that typically the, what you'd maybe default to, or was there the other ways that you would establish well, those connections? Well, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting. And, and the same thing maybe with a stake president is if you were to actually quantify how much time a mission president is with his, and the mission president's wife is his companion, is, is or are with the, the elders and sisters of their mission over a, over their 18-month or two-year mission, it's relatively short. Mm. And so my goal in those interviews was to help them to feel love, 
help them to understand the Lord is mindful of them. I oftentimes, when when I had a, a missionary within the first few months, they were so homesick and wanted to go home. And, and I remember a lot of tearful interviews saying, President, I want to go home. And I'd laugh and say, yeah, well, so do I, but uh, <laughs> I can't. You know, And they'd laugh and they'd say, you ever feel like going home? I said, yeah, all the time. And, and that helps break the ice. But I didn't have the same type of influence or same type of time with them as a companion would. Even as a ward or branch mission leader, maybe would, or the bishop had. And so I had to use those interviews as a chance to really connect with them on a deep personal spiritual level, and then to make our zone conferences and and district meetings as meaningful and as inspiring as possible, because I had to have that influence radiate out over the weeks and months and years. And so working with the missionaries, being with them as much as I could, because in reality, I was so busy that I didn't have the time to, I mean, I knew every single one of them. I I loved every single one of them, but I didn't, if you think about it, I really had maybe days or weeks out of their two years yeah. composite wise. Right. And so it was. I think that was an example. Same thing with the stake as a stake president. I got, I, I remember the stake president that I replaced had been, uh, so he'd been a bishop in the stake for a few years. Then he was called into the stake presidency, served nine years in the stake presidency, then nine or 10 years as stake president. He knew everybody in the stake because he'd had 20 years with them. Yeah. I get called in after having been out on a mission and being down at a BYU stake, and I didn't feel like I knew anybody. But by the time I was done, I knew most everybody, and but I didn't have the time one-on-one. I tried to visit in homes as much as I could, but it's the same thing. When you think about how much time you have with the people, that's when those state conferences, that's when those interactions in, in meetings need to be deeply spiritual and an emotional connection that links you together because you don't have the time to just be knee-to-knee, eyeball-to-eyeball with uh, 5,000 people, or yeah. in my case, 150 missionaries or, or whatever. Yeah. So. so after doing so many of these one-to-one interviews with, with missionaries over those years, you know, especially now, Elders Quorum Presidents, Relief Society Presidents are being encouraged to do these ministering interviews. Right. Any best practices or tips you'd have as far as making a deep connection quicker than possible? I just... I would say, at least for me, that I felt like my calling, and I felt it so profoundly, was a calling of love. And just to love people. And, you know, Moroni, or quoting Mormon, but Moroni tells us that, you know, charity is the greatest of all things. And that pray for charity with all energy of heart. And I think as a as a leader, I remember President Boyd K. Packer came to a mission president seminar. I was mission president in Illinois, and we were having our semi-annual mission president seminar in uh, at winter quarters, I think. Or, no, it was independence. And, and President Packer came, and he said, he said, there's only three things you need to do as a mission president. I thought, oh my gosh, then why did you send me boxes and boxes of stuff that I had to learn and handbooks to study and 
and talks to listen to. He said, there's three things you have to do as a mission president. He said, number one, be an example of a disciple of Christ, and you and Sister Top be an example of what a righteous, eternal marriage should be like. Hmm. Number two, he said, teach the doctrine. And number three, most of all, love them. And when he'd said that, I thought, I can do that. Hmm. And I think that is really the, that is true with everything we do in leading saints. Live the gospel, be a disciple, example, example of the believers. Try to have our marriages and families in tune with the Spirit. Teach the doctrine of the kingdom because the power of the word is far greater than the sword or anything else, Alma tells us. And number three, love. Hmm. And if you narrow it down to that, you can do that. As a stake president, I remember I was interviewing a couple that to go on a mission, and she felt so inadequate. He wanted to go on a MLS mission, a, the proselyting type mission, and and she was not so sure because she said, I've only taught primary, and I, I just don't know if I've got anything that I could do in the mission field. I'm not sure I could be a good missionary. And I remember saying to her, I said, do you love the Lord? She said, yeah, absolutely. I said, can you love other people? And she said, absolutely. I said, then you've got all you need to be successful. And I think that what I learned from President Boyd K. Packer at that Mission President Seminar is focus on those things that are absolutely essential in the eternal scheme of things. And all of us, no matter what our background, no matter what our preparation or lack thereof is, if we have that love of the Lord, love of our fellow men, and a commitment to do what the Lord, through the power of His Spirit, teaches us, we'll be successful. Yeah, yeah. I, I love those three, three points, and and that could uh, that makes it uh, makes it uh, you know possible. It's like, oh, okay, maybe I could do that. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I said I remember uh, in the in the mission president's conference before that, I sat there and it, and I know they were trying to to train us and teach us and. <laughs> But I, there were so many things they were telling us we needed to do, and I thought, there, I will never live on earth long enough <laughs> to yeah. do all these things. And I felt so overwhelmed, so inadequate. And one of my other mission president colleague friends there, in the, in the, he said, you know, this job could kill you. And that was kind of how I felt. This job could kill me. Yeah. But when President Packer in that next mission president seminar said those three things, that said to me, I can do that. Yeah. And I think every single one of us as leaders need to boil it down to this is what I can do. Yeah. And in reality, that's all the Lord expects of us. Yeah. Yeah. This this third principle, I'm curious you know, loving those that you lead. I mean, this is something that oftentimes gets thrown around, but the day-to-day, -day, you know, Thursday at two in the afternoon, like, what does that actually look like? So, how did do, did you go about loving your missionaries? Um, well, one, as it came as a degree of, of the calling with the keys and the mantle. I am convinced that when I was ordained a bishop, there was something that came of an outpouring of love of divine love that was well above anything that I could have developed on my own. But missionaries, when I came into the mission field, I didn't know them, but immediately 
I felt this overpowering sense of love for them because they were sacrificing of their time. They had their own unique challenges. I had a young missionary that told me in an interview that he had joined the church when he was 18 years old. His family didn't want anything to do with him. And he told me the only time he ever received a letter from home was when his parents sent him anti-Mormon literature. How could you not have compassion and love for that? Now, when they did stupid things, and my response was, you did what? (laughs) It was times when I wasn't sure I liked them. But every parent knows that sometimes the child that is struggling the most we love the hardest. Yeah. And I, I really think that the best practice was that I was just praying and getting to know them. And as a stake president, when I would set apart missionaries, I always blessed them because this is what I really learned when you ask, how did I love my missionaries? How did I love the saints as a stake president and so forth? I set them apart and blessed them that they would see people the way the Lord sees them. That, I think, is the greatest catalyst to love, because if we can strip aside misbehavior, the transgressions, family problems, bad attitudes, laziness, all of those things, if we can look beyond that and see that daughter or son of God that has been purchased with the blood of Christ, if I can see him at that very core level, then it's easier to love. Mm. Sometimes it's hard to like or like the things they do. My wife used to say when we were on our mission, she said, there are some missionaries that we hate to see go and others we are willing to help them pack. And uh, <laughs> and it doesn't mean you don't love them. It's just maybe like a parent that has had a 17, 18-year-old getting them through high school. You love them so much, but you are ready for them to go to college. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's awesome. I'm curious, you know, most, a lot of stake, or a lot of mission presidents have been stake presidents. Right. Rarely are they stake presidents after their, right. their mission. So, I'm curious, as a stake president who is a former mission president, any tips or what was your approach on preparing missionaries or interviewing no, them? No, and that that's a very, very legitimate issue. And I actually looked when we were at the mission presidents seminar when we first went out in the, at the MTC in Provo. I looked at all these people that had been stake presidents, some even area 70s, and I was just thinking, oh my gosh, I am so out of my league. I think the first presidency made a mistake when they called me. And then they, some of them told me afterwards, they were looking at me as saying, gosh, he's a BYU religion professor. (laughs) I'm so out of my league, all that. The Lord has his ways of humbling us to remind us, hey, wait a second, there are always people that have different life experiences, different experiences. What made it different was that when I became stake president, I immediately wrote to all of the stake presidents in my mission where I served and who I worked so closely with as a mission president. I wrote a letter of apology to all of those stake presidents in Illinois and Iowa and Missouri <laughs> and uh, and people say, what did you apologize, have to apologize for? I said, I apologize to them for thinking that all they had to do was think about missionary work while I was there. <laughs> and I realized as stake president that there were so many things going on. So I think I was more sensitive 
to the to them after when I became a stake president, and then I became really sensitive to those mission presidents and let them know how much I loved and prayed for them. Um, but I think, I think the experience of being a mission president beforehand helped me to really understand the qualities that we need to help prepare the young men and young women for as missionaries. I think maybe I was better prepared to prepare and to train mm -hmm. having been a mission president before a stake president. So I think my mission interviews, my working with the young men and young women of the stake was maybe a little more preach my gospel and mission preparation oriented uh -huh. than had I just been a stake president first and not really knew what a mission president did. Yeah. Does. Yeah. So any specific advice for maybe a stake president out there that's trying to be help those young men and women prepared? Is it be more familiar with preach my gospel or well, what, I, what else? You know, and for me, and this, this was just me, it's a little bit different. I think as a stake president, if I'd have been a stake president first as a, you know, as a young bishop and having been in a young single adult stake presidency, I think I would have focused so, uh, I think at that time, the focus was so much on unworthiness. Right. Mm -hmm. We were just always focused on worthiness. But as a mission president, relatively speaking, few of my problems were worthiness issues. Huh. And you'd think it would be the opposite, but I dealt with, you know, we had those and we had to deal with it. Most of the challenges that I had as a mission president that bespeaks of what we need to be focusing on as young men's leaders and young women's leaders and, and bishops and, and young single adult advisors and so forth. Most of the problems and most of the challenges I had was to get them to be able to talk with people. I had far more emotional problems than I ever had worthiness problems hmm. with the young missionaries. It was helping them to know what it really was to be a missionary. And you know what? I think the pandemic has helped us all to realize that there are lots of different ways to be missionaries than maybe when I was knocking doors in Denmark in the mid-1970s. And so I think the advantage as a bishop or a stake president now is to help them to understand how to be a, a disciple of Christ that's happy to talk with people. I had a sister missionary one time in an interview, I just love telling this story, is, is that she said, President, she was just so introverted and so shy, and she was so discouraged, and, and, and came in for an interview, and she said, President, I have always wanted to go on a mission. I just didn't know that I was going to have to talk to people. <laughs> and, and I think that was one of the things that I tried to, a couple of things that I tried to help the young people in my stake, that I think maybe having been a mission president was my advantage as a stake president, was one, to help them to feel comfortable talking to people, especially outside of just technology. Uh -huh building relationships, talking. And then I think the other thing that I learned that helped me as a stake president was that these missionaries have got to be able to, in their own words, teach the doctrine of the kingdom. Mm. And that, so they had been worthy all of their life. And when I ask them, have you, do you live the law of chastity? The answer is yes. But if I would have them explain to me why chastity, what is chastity? How are you going to talk to investigators about it? Then they would get the glassed over 
deer in the headlight look and I think helping them to understand the whys, mm. not just the what. Yeah. And I think that was a really a, probably the best thing that I brought with me as a mission president, as stake president, was helping them to know how to prepare missionaries for missionary work in the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah. I've often said that it's one thing to know the gospel or to believe in the gospel. It's a whole other thing to articulate the right. gospel. Yeah. And yeah. I, I use interviews and I would I try to train bishops this is walk your way, walk your way through. And instead of asking yes, no questions. So you ask, do you believe in God, the eternal father and Jesus Christ and in the Holy Ghost? And they'll say yes. Then I would say, how do you know? How do you know you have faith? What evidence do you have of faith? What does it mean to believe in Christ? And get him talking, okay? And you, and you say, have you, have you repented of your sins? Yes, I, I've repented. I've taken care. The phrase that I hated was, I've taken care of that with my bishop. And I'd say, well, I'm, I'm stake president. You still have to talk to me. But I want you to tell me how is repentance evidence in your life right now? not just how you abandon certain things. That, I think, helped them to understand, wait a second, I'm worthy, but I've got to be able to teach people what the gospel is yeah. and what it means. Yeah. So was there more you did? Uh, obviously, these are in the the routine interviews leading up to a mission and the paperwork and whatnot. Was there anything else you did to help them become more comfortable with talking? And yes, Absolutely. I was, in fact, I was just talking with uh, one of my daughters last night because we were talking about uh, as now the, we're coming out of the pandemic and able to start having young women's activities and young men's activities and camps and so forth. And we were talking that as a stake president, I, I, instead of having lots of activities on a stake level or even maybe on a ward level, I wanted to have impact activities. And so I would say one time in those six years from 12 to 18, wanted to have something that was an absolute life changer as far as intense feeling of the spirit and having their testimonies built in some way. Okay. Some did it through track or other kinds of things. And then in the, one of those off years, I want it to be something that is missionary related, where it is totally focused on mission prep missionary activities, what it's like to be a missionary, sharing the gospel. And so a youth conference is could be one of those impact experiences. But if we don't then take that impact experience and allow the young people to teach what they have experienced mm. and why the gospel is important in their lives— then we're missing out. If we only have them get up and bear testimony the Sunday after that impact experience, then we're missing an opportunity for them to feel comfortable teaching by the power of the Spirit, hmm. teaching what the gospel does to you as what it, and for you. And so I tried to mix in those kinds of, of experiences. Uh, and then in ward conferences, I tried to also teach the youth periodically in ward conferences. Yeah. And yeah. So it sounds like, you know, creating that space after these high impact uh, spiritual experiences, creating that space of, of allowing them to teach or articulate what it is they experience. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, uh, one of the, uh, one of the best things I think we did on our mission, and it wasn't even me doing it, but it was sister top. 
when I would be in interviews, she would be in meetings, district meetings with them where they were teaching one another. And sometimes she would send out in advance and say, this is the doctrine from lesson such and such we're going to do and give them assignments to think about and and challenge and test uh, how you're going to teach. The first time I went out with the missionaries, I thought, how does anybody join the church? <laughs> you know, and I realized it was because they really had never. And this, again, was before Come Follow Me it was many years ago now. But they really had never had the opportunity to study the doctrine and then teach it in such a way. My wife used to always say to him, you've got to prepare a lesson and teach, even if they're adults, you've got to teach it as if you were teaching a primary class. Hmm. Because most of the time we teach over people's heads and it makes us be better as teachers and leaders if we think, what is this person needing on the most basic level? Yeah. And uh, so- yeah. That's really helpful because there is an an emphasis, a strong emphasis on, you know, reading the scriptures right. and going through the manuals and seminary, yeah. sitting in the classroom, but maybe bringing in more experience of actually teaching. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and I think one of the other things that was very helpful in our stake, and, and I, I noticed since I've been released, they're still doing some really wonderful things there, is that because emotional well-being is such a challenge as a, as a missionary, that they focused on mental health issues right now and dealing with anxiety, uh, dealing with depression, because virtually all the ways that a young person has to deal with it in their life now, they're not going to have as a missionary. They've got to find ways to deal with those expectations, deal with perfectionism mm -hmm. right now before they crash and burn as a missionary. Yeah. And so that's that's what I said as a as a preparation aspect of it, that my experiences as a mission president probably guided me to say worthiness is one aspect of it, but it is certainly not the most, I, I shouldn't say most important, but it's certainly not the one on a day-to-day -day business that you're going to have in dealing with missionaries other yeah. than, you know, having the spirit in their lives. But yeah. I think we're, we've come a long way from where they're able to teach lessons, where they're able to prepare things and teach in their own words. Mm -hmm. That is the most critical thing is to teach. What does this mean to you? Yeah. What does yeah. this mean to you? That's really helpful. Awesome. The second thing that uh, President uh, Packer mentioned to you as far as teach the doctrine, and this is, I mean, it makes, on paper, it makes complete sense to me. In practice, it sometimes, or not all the times, becomes very difficult or a little more nuanced because... It seems like in, even in a typical Sunday school class, an individual may begin to try and teach the doctrine, and then there's maybe, well, I, I see it a little different, I see it that different, then we're thinking, we look at the bishop, well, what do you think? And it, well, I see it this way, and, and it's hard to really nail down, okay, then what is the doctrine? Well, so, what, do you, oh, what thoughts come? Absolutely, and as a religion professor, I've grappled with that a zillion times <laughs> in the last 45 years. Yeah. Uh, but I think the idea is... Not as much as saying, okay, there is a handout. Excuse me, I'll, let me back up. So when you ex examine what is the doctrine of the church, churchofjesuschrist.org, and in the church educational system file or tab, you will also see things that will document called the basic doctrines of the church. And what I always told my missionaries 
chapter three of Preach My Gospel, which are the missionary lessons, that pretty well establishes the doctrine of the church. The things that you described in a priesthood class or a Relief mm-hmm. Society class, less in Relief Society, or in a Sunday school class, really tend to not be the things that are in the missionary lessons that we might call esoteric doctrines. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that we need to focus on, again, is what are the absolute central critical doctrines that are salvational? And let's focus on studying them. Mm-hmm. I had a, uh, when I was mission president, I had a zone leader in Quincy, Illinois. And he said, President, why do I have to keep taking members with us when we teach? I said, because that's, we want to make that connection and we want to build those friendships. They said, yeah, but brother so-and-so always wants to talk about mother in heaven and polygamy and the role of polygamy in the future, Uh in the eternities. I don't want him going with me. And I thought, okay, that really says it, (laughs) is that sometimes these good high priests, that's what they spent their time studying and worrying about. Uh Uh But when you're teaching people that are trying to really draw closer to Christ, that actually got in the way of your relationship with the Lord. But teaching doctrine means that we focus on the scriptures. We focus on the words of the prophets, not the I heard somewhere or my religion professor at BYU said, but we have studied. I think uh, I I call this uh, maybe religious malpractice, and I'm, this is a, I'm saying it <laughs> facetiously, okay. but I, I'm saying it malpractice. If we go into a Sunday school class and we want to contribute a lot in class, but we haven't actually studied the scripture block mm-hmm. and we haven't really pondered. You see what I'm saying yeah. is that we want to contribute, but we really haven't paid the price to contribute. Mm. And I think that's one of the values of preach my gospel values of come follow me is that it's forcing us to pay the price to be able to teach with knowledge and teach with the spirit. But teaching the doctrine means staying focused on those things that will absolutely bring the spirit and change lives. Yeah. Help them to understand the atonement of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so one place that individuals may wrestle with that is like in a, a Sunday school class or a Relief Society or, or a priesthood class where it's encouraging. You know, we, we don't want the lecture type of setting. Right. We want discussion happening. And so right. then it becomes difficult. Like, well, I'm as the instructor, I want to teach the doctrine here. Right. But, you know, Brother Jones and Brother Smith, they keep taking us in one way and because and yeah. they feel this. And, and I'm glad that they're talking, contributing. But what are we doing here? Yeah. You know? and, and that is one of the challenges. Yeah. But when you talk about that in our church settings, we're wanting people to participate. We want them to share. We want them to teach one another as the as Doctrine and Covenants section 88 teaches. But there is an assumption, a presupposition to that, and that is that they're studying the scriptures. Mm, yeah. That they're reading and pondering and praying. It's not just talking back and forth. And sharing, I mean, I like to call it, you remember in the Olympics, whether it's skiing or ice skating or in the gymnastics, they hold up their scorecards. And sometimes I feel like we 
hold up our scorecards for the comments that we make in class. <laughs> oh, that was a 5.5. Oh, this was a 6.0. <laughs> that isn't really the intent. It is what insights did you gain from your study of the scriptures? Yeah. Yeah. And so what would you, what advice would you give to a teacher walking into class? Like I hate to throw elders quorum under the bus where it's obvious 95% of the room has not reviewed the material. And is there, is there any advice you'd give in that scenario? If we could answer that, we would get the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints equivalent of the Nobel Prize. Uh, that is something that every unit struggles with. Yeah. But one of the great blessings of the pandemic of the last almost year and a half was that the intent was that it forced us to study the scriptures and teach on our own and in our families. Hmm. And so... I have a feeling that way you taught your children and you taught your family during that pandemic was drastically different than what was taught in elders quorum. Yeah. And I think the Lord is trying to say to us, well, wait a second, what was it that I want my children? When we have our children and grandchildren together, I mean, it, sometimes it's still even hard to get through things, but it focused on not how much I know and my own studies as how much I want them to be able to experience what I know about the Lord hmm. and what I know through the power of the Spirit that will bless their lives. I mean, we've, we have yeah. gotten way off subject. Well, but, but, yeah, you know, helpful. if I go back to doctrine, let me just give you an example. Okay. And I don't want us to sound like I'm throwing the previous mission president under the bus. Every mission president inherits problems. And my successor probably had those moments when they thought, what in the world did President Top do for three years? <laughs> but when I came into the mission, there were some real challenges and some real problems and some real disobedience. And it turned around almost 180 degrees over that next three years. And I remember we take the missionaries to the Nauvoo Temple on their last day in the mission field. And then we would do a temple session and we would go back to the mission home in Peoria, Illinois, and and have our evening. And as we were driving back to hour and a half, two hours from Nauvoo to Peoria, I would ask the, the missionaries that were going home, I would just say, what has made the greatest difference for you in your mission? And what have you seen take place in the mission that has had the greatest impact on you? And more than anything else, it was that they would say, when you and Sister Top taught the doctrine of the church. When you taught us doctrine, and I said, why would you say that? And they would say, because it gave the reason for why we were doing what we were doing. Hmm. When you understand how the dots are connected, rather than just focusing on rules, then things change. And that really changed our mission when they started to realize, hey, wait a second, I'm a critical part of the gathering of Israel. Hmm. And now I understand what the gathering of Israel is all about, and I'm part of it. It makes it far more motivational to do your job. Yeah. And so when President Boyd K. Packer taught that the teaching of doctrine will change behavior better than the teaching of behavior will change behavior, it's really telling us the why, the wherefores. And so as leaders in the church, we teach the doctrine, one, to inspire and to help us to know 
what the doctrine of the church is and that we can use it in our own ministries, but I believe is the greatest motivation for gospel living than anything else. Yeah. And then as a mission president, you have to harp less on the behaviors and the rules, right? That's that's, the point. Yeah. That is exactly the point. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing we have seen in church curriculum through the years as we have gotten more and more and more scripture-based and doctrine-based. The church educational system has gone to a doctrinal mastery system because I think it's saying to us, that maybe we had young people that memorized scriptures but had no idea what they meant. Yeah. Maybe we mm. had young people and old people alike that could answer the temple recommend questions with all the right questions in the right order, but didn't know what it means to sustain the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as the only person on earth authorized to exercise all priesthood keys. They may not even have ever heard of priesthood keys. But as we teach those doctrines, is that then becomes the very reason for why we do what we do. Hmm. That's fantastic. Really helpful. Just a few random thoughts that I wanted to ask you about. One, I think in a recent podcast episode, I forget which one it was, but uh, you talked about this concept of meekness. And meekness and leadership is interesting because, you know, we were... We're called to these leadership roles where the we're the person in charge. And so we want to act with a level of confidence, but we don't want to go too far where, you know, we're sort of uh maybe approaching pride and but we want to be meek, but what's what's the difference? And and so it's easy to sort of shrink in these callings and just think like, oh well, whatever you want to do, I'm fine, rather than stepping into the role, right? So what thoughts come to mind? Well, there's a great example of where we maybe haven't taught the doctrine very well. Okay. We maybe ought to go to a gospel rather than a, a, the gospel, a scriptural study of the word rather than a thesaurus study of the word sometimes. Mm. Because whenever you use the term in our modern vernacular, meekness, immediately people think of weakness because it rhymes, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. But in reality, in the scriptures, when it talks about being meek and lowly of heart, It doesn't say weak and pitiful. That's not what it's saying. I love what President Howard W. Hunter taught many years ago about meekness, where he said, in a world with so much assertiveness and so much of getting our way through intimidation, and we've certainly seen examples of that in in modern society around us, of where where we can bully leadership, that in reality, meekness is not that at all. It is gentleness, kindness, love unfeigned. It's Doctrine Covenant section 121. Meekness is not weakness. It is not milquetoast personality. I mean, I have been around leaders of the church that are as dynamic and strong and brilliant as can be, and with very strong personalities, but meek and lowly of heart means they are submissive to the will of God. Hmm. Being more Christ-like is meekness. At times, Jesus lifted up the lame man, healed the blind. At times, he called out the scribes and Pharisees and the hypocrites. 
At times he was gathering in the one from the hundred. At other times he is tossing over tables and coins and whipping people. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that's necessarily the leadership model we want to use is throw over tables and, <laughs> and get, a, sure. get a whip. But the idea is meekness is doing the will of the Father. Meekness is seeking to embody Christ-like attributes in our lives. Meekness is recognizing the source of power. It is not weakness. Hmm. President Nelson President Oaks, President Eyring are not weak, shrinking, violet leaders and prophets of God. Mm -hmm. But they are striving to be in tune with the Spirit and Christ-like. That's what meekness to me means. And that's why I think President Hunter talked so much about it. He said, meekness can be doing things. That's kind of like what you're talking about uh -huh. with leadership. Right. And he says, but sometimes meekness can be not doing things. Meekness can be calling out sin. Meekness is also crying with the sinner and lifting and strengthening. And so I think that's what I mean when I see the scriptures as meekness. It's not a personality deficiency. Uh -huh. It's not a lack of dynamism. In fact, uh, the Greek word from which dynamic comes means power. Hmm. And so how do meekness and power go hand in hand? Is because the meek have the power of God. Because they recognize the source of their power is not their own ability. Pride is the relying on your own ability. Pride is trying to do things your own way. Meekness is always trying to do things the Lord's way. Love it. That's really helpful. And uh, sort of making a left turn, but in, along the same vein there is, you mentioned earlier in your story where th these feelings you had leading up to being called as a state president, a counselor's name would come to mind, and you'd sort of have this feeling of guilt at times. And it goes to this tradition, and I don't know how else I would term it, but this idea of aspiring to a calling. Because right. I get emails from a lot of individuals who who felt a lot of those same feelings and then they weren't called yeah. and then they wonder what's wrong or, you know, the adversary mixes it up and oh, says, sure. oh, well, maybe God's disappointed in you or whatnot. Yeah. So what could you teach us about the whole concept of, of aspiring in that vein? Well, I think, and it goes along with that discussion of, of meekness because out of section 121, you know, many are called, but few are chosen. And let me back up and answer your question by also saying that President Uchtdorf addressed that very issue when he was serving in the first presidency. And he talked about that when we receive those feelings, sometimes we misinterpret them to mean that you're going to be called to be the state president this time, mm. as much as the Lord may be saying to you, you are of this caliber, right. you are progressing in that way, and I am preparing you for that day. And I think Part of the problem is that we have equated positions with righteousness and discipleship. Mm. And again, that probably is another misunderstanding of the doctrine of the, of the kingdom. And I think that is the very thing that Jesus was trying to disrupt in his mortal ministry 
is the the hierarchy of the of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the and the pride in position is that he's trying to teach the humble people that service to the Lord is is not restricted to a position of leadership in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. One of the bless, best blessings that I have ever received in any leadership capacity is the realization of the goodness of people. That there were people in my stake as stake president that would do anything for anyone at any time. And they may never serve in any leadership position, but they exemplified discipleship and the covenants of the temple better than most of us. Yeah. As a mission president, district leaders, zone leaders, assistants to the president, trainers, they're a dime a dozen, no offense intended. Yeah. But give me that missionary that could be with any difficult companion. Give me that missionary that would serve the Lord even under the most difficult and challenging circumstances in a hard area. I would rather have that kind of leadership. As a bishop, I would rather have that person that shows up to teach primary than the person that wants to be the gospel doctrine teacher because he wants to show off how much he knows. Mm. So you you see what I'm saying is I think section 121 doesn't give us a list of saying, if you had a feeling that you might be called as a bishop, that you were aspiring. No, I think the real question that has to be answered is the why. Why do you want to serve? I would hope that every single person in the church would want to live the gospel in such a way that they could impact people's lives, that they could lead people to Christ, whether it's as a stake president or a general authority, or whether it's as a nursery worker, or as that sister senior missionary that didn't think she had anything to give in the mission field. I think the idea of aspiring is found in the next phrase in section 121, aspiring to the honors of men. Hmm. I knew that I was being considered to be called to be a mission president. And I, I don't know all the circumstances as to how it came about, but I knew that my name had been submitted or something. And I struggled with, and my wife and I struggled with, what do we pray for? Do we pray that it doesn't happen and our lives are not disrupted and we are not subjected to that job that could kill you? <laughs> or do we pray that we would be found worthy and willing and prepared the best we can to serve in however we are called. I think that's where I have to search my own soul. I had, when I called bishops, I had bishops that handed me the names of their counselors that night. They had had those feelings. I had bishops that they were hit by a sledgehammer when I extended the call to them. I don't know why God does it the way he does it. But when we think about aspiring If I have those feelings, is it because I want to serve the Lord and be prepared in whatever way he wants to use me? Or is it that I think that I'm better than others because I'm called to some other position? Man, and that is a tough self-inventory. 
And so I, I don't know. I, yeah. I mean, I've struggled with that, and I don't think I've got any great answers. But I remember as stake president, we were in an area in a coordinating council, priesthood leadership council, and and after we'd had the training in the morning, then the stake presidents were invited to a luncheon with Elder David A. Bednar, and and uh, I had known uh, Elder Bednar when he was president of uh, Ricks College, BYU, Idaho, and. Uh, I was sitting next to him. We got talking and he was talking about something and he said, the Lord will let you know your inadequacies. The Lord will let you know what you need to do to be the kind of leader you need to be. He said, if you ask him, he will let you know, but you better be prepared for the answer. (laughs) And I thought that was a really interesting response is if I want to know whether I am aspiring or whether I have truly Christ-like desires to serve and build the kingdom, is am I meek enough to go to the Lord and say, what lack I yet? Or am I, right, like me right now, ah, I'll just go along. I'm not sure I want to be told right now <laughs> all the things that I need to do. But you see what I'm saying there is, Those feelings are not in any way trying to say you are more special than somebody else. They are saying, I can use you at a particular time, in a particular need, in a particular circumstance. I mean, I looked out as a mission president out in the, quote, mission field. Sometimes the bishops and branch presidents and the leaders were were not great, but it was the best the Lord had to work with at that time. Mm -hmm. And the Lord qualifies those that he calls. And so aspiring is a tough, tough thing. I aspire, and I am proud to say that, and I humbly and meekly say that, I am proud to say I aspire to serve the Lord. Love it. Yeah, that's perfect. But do I aspire to be the stake president? That's a different issue altogether. Right. Yeah. The last topic I wanted to get your thoughts on, as we've talked about these various different leadership positions you've had, I remember going from, you know, I, I was a bishop called into stake president, and that was much easier transition out of bishop than when I was just released from the stake presidency to nothing because we moved, right? And so a lot of people I feel like are suffering in quiet desperation, a lot of leaders that are released and that, you know, you go from being a mission president with all these missionaries looking up to you, they're looking forward to the next zone conference, and then suddenly that's gone and you sort of lose your purpose and identity a little bit and kind of go through that identity crisis. Any any thoughts or tips that way? I've been through, I've been there, done that. Yeah. And I joked that the, the stake president that I replaced, so he would come down on Tuesday nights when we were doing interviews and stuff. Afterwards, he would come down to bring the mail that had come to his house, you know, (laughs) and I I thought it was so funny. And I would tease President Ridge uh, that when he would come down, he'd be dressed up in his suit and tie and everything because he, you know, had enough respect for the office. But he'd bring down the mail and and I would say, President, are you just wandering around looking for a meeting to go to? (laughs) And you think of him, you know, 20 years Every Tuesday night, you know, for 20 plus years, he'd been down at the church. And yet I've had people that ask me, how long did did it take you when you were released as stake president to adjust to your new life? And I said, about 30 seconds. And I I say that facetiously and tongue in cheek because my term as dean of religious education 
ended two weeks after I was released as state president. Oh, wow. So for those 10 years, I'd been in, uh, in a leadership position, both professionally and ecclesiastically under so much stress and so much intense activity, and then have it all go just like that be gone. Mm -hmm. I think there is a culture shock to the body. But I think it is also saying that maybe if it is so much of a culture shock, that maybe I have misplaced priorities. Mm. Now, I say that because I've been there and I've been through it. I know exactly. But maybe as a bishop, maybe as a state president, mission president was a little different that way because my wife was with me 24-7. But maybe if it was such a culture shock to come home, then maybe I wasn't home as much as a leader when I should have been. Hmm. If you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, so I was trying to say to the bishops in our stake, I would say, instead of spending all Sunday morning in meetings, and that the only time your kids, your young children see you is when you get home at night and you've got nothing left for them, then maybe do your ward council some other time and go home and fix breakfast for your kids <laughs> and be with your family. Yeah. Maybe we were missing the point of how can I do that? One of those first things that I said President Packers had to us was to be an example of a righteous family and of a married couple. Maybe I missed the point and thought that I would would please the Lord more by being a great bishop than being a great dad and a great husband. Yeah. Now, my wife would come in and tell you, oh, man, he talks a big game, but he's not really <laughs> yeah. he, he's not really do, doing that. I mean, or like my kids would say in books that I've written, he would say, they say, oh, there's another book that dad writes that says, do as I say, not as he did as a dad. <laughs> but I think for me, the culture shock was maybe a shock to the schedule of my system, yeah. my life. But it was an absolute delight to sit with my wife in church and hold hands because for a lot of years, yeah. I didn't even see her on Sundays. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. And, and it's definitely like a proactive battle, right? That Because these callings can completely swallow you whole. Oh, like, oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, no doubt about it. <laughs> you know, and we want to serve well. We've been asked to do this, right. so we want Magnify to jump in. Magnify your calling yeah, is the right. phrase we use all the time. Right. And uh, it, we, you can go so far that you lose yourself, you lose your identity, and right. then when that change comes, it's it's yeah. a shock. Well, and, and again, it yeah. goes back on section 121 is, well, why am I doing what I'm doing? Yeah. Is it that I love the honors and accolades of people? Let me give you a funny example. When I was released as stake president, Elder Craig C. Christensen of the presidency of the 70 was the presiding authority. And he told the stake after we were released, he said, now, do not refer to this outgoing stake presidency as presidents anymore. They are just Brother Top, Brother B. Singer, Brother Seavey. And so and you think about it, for all those years, I was President Top, one to hundreds of missionaries, and then a stake president. And then all of a sudden, people don't know what to call me. <laughs> So the next Sunday, I'm in, I'm in church, and they don't know what to call me. And the elders corner president said, President, no, brother, what, are you, what, is, what should I call you? I said, well, this is one that you can always remember. Call me bad boy Brent. And that became a moniker that has kind of stuck that 
I think it helped to say to me more than even to the stake members, you're not president anymore. Uh You have no responsibility over them. You can love them. You can't stop loving them. But your job now is to do what you told people to do for 10 years. Yeah. And especially from the leadership point of view, like that's so helpful, at least from my experience, when they do revert back because it sort of helps you reclaim your identity. Right. Because you can be lost in the past of like, you know, I've been in some wars and I'm like, why do they keep calling that guy president? And I find out like, you know, 15 years ago, you you know, and it's sort of hard to connect at times with people because you're not sure who they are or where they're at. Right. Or or what, and it becomes a spiritual identity crisis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that I think is what the Lord's trying to get us to avoid is that just like we used to say to people, if the spiritual highlight of your, your life was the two years you spent as a missionary from 19 to 21, then you have really not been progressing. Well, wait a second. Then how does that not apply to bishop and state right. president and everything else? Yeah. If I'm not having spiritual experiences, if I'm not really progressing in my relationship with the Lord, regardless of whatever calling I am in, and I am relying only on those 10 years as stake president, three years as mission president, five years as bishop, then maybe, maybe I was just aspiring to the honors of men Hmm. and I need to repent. And that's hard. I mean, it's, I wish that, you know, we, one of my colleagues, he was uh, one of my professors in graduate school and then became a dear friend. And, and he was, uh, a mission president out in the same area that I was mission president. And, and, uh, he became the general Sunday school president years later in an area 70, uh, Russell Osgathorpe mm. and, uh, Russ Osgathorpe, uh, told a funny experience that he had when talking about the missionary name badge. And, uh, he went into, a, a place to, I think it was to have pictures printed up, photos printed up. And he, was telling him his name and they couldn't spell it. Osgathorpe. He's trying to spell it out. And finally he just said, just look at the name badge. And the person said, Jesus Christ. And I thought, <laughs> you know, isn't that interesting? Yeah. But if that were really the case, that instead of wearing figurative name badges that say Bishop, Relief Society President, Stake President, that we wore those figurative name badges that said, Disciple of Jesus Christ. Hmm. And if we would focus on that, do people see in me my demeanor, my service, my love for others? Do they see the Lord Jesus Christ? That's really all that matters. Yeah. And if I was wearing that name badge around all the time, it might cause me to act different. But in reality, we are wearing that name badge around because we're supposed to have the image of God engraven in our countenance. So, Yeah, that's awesome. This has just been such a fun discussion, and and we've touched on different themes, but that's okay. There's no rules here in podcasting, so uh, we'll just go with it. Well, that may be even on your podcast on leadership. Sometimes there's no rules in leadership. Right, yeah, right. That's true. (laughs) And it's different from position to position. I had once, I had a a former temple president and a former mission president and a former state president, they were all he, that same person. He said, you know, it's interesting when you were a mission president, the brethren 
teach you to think out of the box. But then when you're the temple president, they tell you to stay in the box. (laughs) Yeah, the rules change. There's no rules wherever you're at. You just do what the Lord would have you do is the best you can do. Awesome. Well, I got one more question for you. But uh, before I ask that, I know you've written books and whatnot. If people do want to get more familiar with your writings, where, where would you send them? Oh, geez. Just just Google me and okay. uh, or just go, uh, you can go to Deseret Book and and I'll have a search engine and just say Brennell Top. Uh, That'll lead you to the right uh, place. Yeah, there, there's a few things there. Cool. That I've written a few things, let's just say that. Yeah, so. awesome. Well, uh, the last question I have for you is as you consider the various leadership positions that you've had and, and roles in, in leadership, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, that absolutely is the case. Back before ministering, when we had home teaching, as a bishop, when I would see the needs of people, and yet their home teachers or visiting teachers didn't even know what was going on in their lives, and I was running myself ragged, or as stake president, when I would see bishops running themselves ragged to try to do everything, and yet never involve the home teacher or the visiting teacher in things that matter the most. And so I think it taught me to be a better minister because as a stake president, I think the things that really made the biggest difference was when I was in the homes of people, not just in the office, but when I was in their homes. And I think I, as a minister, need to do that better. The pandemic has brought both good things and bad things. I think it's brought good things because it made us all a little more centered in our worship, the sacrament in the home, the home-centered worship was so wonderful in so many ways. And then we longed to be back with the saints. We longed for that sociality. But in some respects, 15 months of the pandemic has disconnected us from our ministering assignments. At least I'm speaking for myself. We were ministering through texts and other kinds of things as important as it is, but there was nothing like just being in a person's home and letting them know that you love and care about them. And and, uh, uh, the other thing is that I think that I have been, as a leader, have been made to be more compassionate because as you sit on the stand and you look out over the congregation, whatever capacity you're sitting in, you see that every family has problems. And in every home, there are heartaches. In every every person has some unfulfilled dreams or promises that have not been fulfilled yet to them. And I, I think that as I sit now down in the congregation, trying to be supportive and do my part in building the kingdom, I now understand better than I did before any of those leadership that every person that is sitting around me, every neighbor that is around me has those challenges. And that when it says that we have covenanted to bear one another's burdens, I think I have a new appreciation for what that means. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. 
If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three most popular sessions of the Liberating Saints Library.